Let's uh, pray and prepare our hearts for our time in the Word of God. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your Word. Thank you that it is clear, that it is perfect, and that it is sufficient for every need. Do its sanctifying work in our hearts this morning that we may be conformed to Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we open our Bibles together to the book of 1 John, continue our study in that short but very packed text. 1 John chapter 2. Passage will be the same as it was last Lord's Day, verses 1 through 6. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. Please follow along as I read. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. May God bless by the reading of his word. We have titled this sermon, Rest in Christ for Saved Sinners. And as we discussed last Lord's Day, the main thrust of a passage like this is that we would come to a greater knowledge of God's saving grace for us, and not just a one-time grace that is given. We characterize the grace is found within a, within a text like this as a gift that keeps on giving. And in our first point, last Lord's Day in verse 1, we found this very important instruction, is that we lean on Christ, our support. And of course, the fact that Christ is our support lends itself to the fact that He is our great high priest. And so what do we mean by a gift that keeps on giving in this sense, especially as we look forward to the remainder of the Advent season? The fact is, is that once Christ is our high priest, He is our high priest forever. There will never be another high priest, nor do we have need of one. As the book of Hebrews says, Christ is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There will never need to be another. If Christ represents you, as John says here, if Christ, the righteous one, is there by your side, He is all you need. He is sufficient to represent you. And of course, we do not then stand in our own righteousness. We realize that without Christ, we would pale in the presence of the living God. We would surely perish. And just a little qualification from last Lord's Day sermon, I mentioned that, uh, you know, what can we do when we sin? Because this is sort of one of, the, this is one of the main themes of a passage like this. What do we do when we sin and we will? What is our recourse? And I mentioned that there was nothing we could do. And of course, then I proceeded to give you an instruction of something to do. But the main point in that is, is, is in this context, it's knowing that there is nothing that you can do, even in Christ, there is nothing that you can do to ingratiate yourself to God. There is nothing that you can do to earn or re-earn His favor. There is nothing that you can do even to restore fellowship. The thing that we forfeit when we continue in sin is we forfeit the joys of fellowship. But once you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you are united with Him forever. As the popular saying goes, there is nothing that you could do to be in Christ, so there is nothing you can do to be out of Christ. Maybe an oversimplification, but there is plenty to unpack there. But once again, the point of this is to refresh ourselves by the grace of God, the life-transforming grace of God, a grace of God that brings us to life, a grace of God that is sufficient to, to forgive sins, a grace of God that is sufficient so that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the first point is lean on Christ, your support. And so today, we come to verse 2, if you want to look at the text again. Verse 2, 
And of course, this follows rather properly from what we learn about the Lord Jesus in the first verse, that he is the righteous one. And so it follows, look at verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So here's the second instruction. Once again, asking the question, how do we receive this rest? How do we refresh ourselves as redeemed sinners in Christ? What do we do when we sin? We lean on Christ, our support. And secondly, look to Christ, your Savior. We alluded to this concept a little bit last Lord's Day when we talked about that story in the book of Numbers where Israel complained against God. They accused Him of basically having abandoned them. They accused Moses, of course, as well. And fiery serpents were sent in the midst of the congregation. And so, what was their recourse? Well, they had to look at a bronze serpent that Moses had fashioned and placed in the midst of the congregation. Jesus says this very same thing in the book of John, chapter 3. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, so that all who believe in Him may have eternal life. Right? All who look to Christ, their Savior, will have eternal life. Who look upon Him, and only Him, as sufficient to save. This instruction, friends, is one of the most basic teachings, probably the most basic teaching in all of Christianity. When we preach the Gospel, we are preaching a Savior. We are preaching one, the only one, who can save from sin. There is no Savior like the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no Savior like the Lord. No one is sufficient to the task to do this work of salvation other than Jesus Christ. And so what is the instruction? It's to look to Him. Now one of the ways that Christians sin is that we, like Peter walking on the water, we take our eyes off Christ. And it's really tragic when that happens. To defy a command so basic. If we look to Christ our Savior once, we look to Him always. This is not an intermittent activity in the Christian life, though sometimes we treat it as such. But in looking to Christ our Savior, it is a continual gaze that we hold. Knowing that there is no deliverance from sin and death without Him. And we do that in light of the fact that we are born into sin, and yet we are delivered from it by the righteous act, the righteous propitiatory act of one man. And that is the key word in this verse. So look at verse 2 again. He Himself is the propitiation of our sins. Key word is propitiation. A, a, a word that is rich with meaning. To propitiate means to appease or satisfy. In its full theological sense, to propitiate or to make propitiation means to satisfy or to appease wrath. And in this case, it is to appease divine wrath. And I know that comes as a shock to many. One of the most offensive teachings in all of Christianity is that is the idea that God is mad at you. That God is angry. That is so offensive to people. On one hand, most people are very self-righteous. Most people think of themselves as very good people. And then, of course, flowing from that would be some kind of understanding, a false understanding, that if they are good people, then how could God be mad at them? How could God be angry at them? That is puzzling. We talked about the puzzle last Lord's Day of the Christian sinning. Righteous yet sinning? This is the puzzle for the unbeliever. That God is angry at sinners. He's angry at sin and He's ready to punish. Wrath being that outpouring of divine justice upon sin, which we would say, yes, that is a just and right thing for God to do. For any to offend His holiness means the awaiting, the sure, the sure terror of divine wrath. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. In Romans 1.18, we read that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. It's a heavenly kind of wrath against all ungodliness, against all ungodly people. 
But this wrath is being revealed in the present against unbelief. It's not popular to think that God is angry at us. It's not popular to think that God is angry at anybody. Our mostly 20th and 21st century notions of God is that He is a cosmic Santa Claus. He is only loving. He is only giving. He is only compassionate. He is only merciful. But as soon as we venture into the seas of God's justice and His wrath towards sinners, sometimes we run into some problems. And I think one of the, one of the simplest problems we run into is that of cowardice. We are afraid to speak of God's wrath to men because we fear the wrath of man more than we fear the wrath of God. And as we continue, as the church continues in that direction, we start thinking of that teaching as horrendous and offensive. Yeah, why should God be mad at us? Why should God be angry at us? And then we are more offended at it as the unbeliever. But Jesus himself is clear in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What is the initial command of the Gospel? It is repent and believe. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. That it is a response. We do respond to the Gospel. It is not a meritorious response, but it is a response nonetheless. A Holy Spirit-empowered response. We cannot place faith in Christ without the inner working of the Holy Spirit. That is clear. But that is one of the harsh truths that we have to face. And that is one of the harsh truths of preaching the Gospel. Is that there is a God in heaven who though loving, hates sin. And He punishes sin. And so what is the solution? That's the, that's the conundrum that all of mankind is faced with. What is, what is the solution to this problem? If God indeed is angry with sinners in general, and if God is angry at me in particular because of my sin, then what is the solution? What is my recourse? Is there any, what is, what is the good news for me? And it's found here in the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, is that God, right, it always starts with God. It never starts with you. It starts with God, and it ends with God. It is found in this word, propitiation. The propitiation, and it says this in verse 2, that He Himself, that Jesus is the propitiation. Jesus is the means by which God, as one resource says, is rendered propitious by which it becomes consistent with his character and government to pardon and bless the sinner. So we see that outflow when propitiation is met. Not only is God's anger against us satisfied and even removed, but also he, he can then give us all spiritual blessings that are commensurate with our life in Christ. Going on, says this, the propitiation does not procure his love or make him loving. God is loving. By his nature. But going on, it says it only renders it consistent for him to exercise his love towards sinners. You see, if God's wrath abides on us, right, if, if his wrath against us is not satisfied, that is, if sin is not punished, then God's loving us is inconsistent with his character. And so we have Christ, our propitiation, and the instruction here, the gift that keeps on giving, the continual command, note, to the Christian here. This is, John is talking to Christians. It is to look to Christ your Savior. It is to look to Christ as the propitiation for our sins. As the one who satisfies divine wrath, divine justice for our sins. Look to Christ your Savior. This word propitiation turns up elsewhere in the New Testament in Romans 3.25, it talks of Jesus as the one whom God displayed publicly, right? There's that, there's that universal witness of Christ upon the cross. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Well, look at that. Pause there. Didn't we just get done talking about Jesus Christ, the righteous one? See the, you see the connection between righteousness and propitiation. The fact that Christ satisfies God's justice against us is a demonstration of God's righteousness. That He will not continue to wink at sin. 
that he cannot and will not save until his wrath against sinners is satisfied. But only Jesus is sufficient to that task. And so God's righteousness is proclaimed to the ends of the earth when Jesus died. And it says this, because in, his for, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That is why God could, God could pass over those sins and be just because in the mind of God, the plan was always to send his son to satisfy his justice. That's why Paul says in the book of Acts, chapter 17 on the Areopagus, hey, the time has come. The times of ignorance are over. Let every man repent. Let every man believe the gospel. And have your sins forgiven. And see the justice of God against you satisfied. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews talks pretty well about this this propitiatory activity. Remember, propitiation is not isolated to the New Testament. It is connected to the sacrificial system of the old. Now listen to what Hebrews 9 says. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So he's giving you a view of of the temple area. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies or the most holy place. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, very important in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Of course, the reason was is that that is where the presence of God dwelt between the two cherubim called the mercy seat. So let's go on. Verse 4 of Hebrews 9. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded. And the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing, now mark this word, the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. wonder why the writer of the Hebrews said that. But pay attention to mercy seat. The same Greek word is used there as propitiation in 1 John. In 1 John, it's hilasmos. In uh, Hebrews 9, it is hilasterion. So coming from the same root, but the understanding here is that the mercy seat was related to propitiation. And and of course, the answer is that it was the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled for the atonement of sin. Now, of course, we understand that, that their sin was atoned for, but not permanently. That is why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to make permanent atonement. He had to make once for all propitiation. You know, we read in the scriptures that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So there was no permanence behind the old covenant. That's why Hebrews explains that year after year, this activity on the day of atonement had to take place because there was no permanence to the Old Testament sacrificial system. But it became a type, a type that looked forward to the once for all sacrificial propitiatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why today there is no more need for sacrifice because propitiation has already been made. Interestingly enough, the same word that is used for mercy seat is used also in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint for mercy seat. If you read in Exodus 25, 17, it says you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. So you see the important uh, Old Testament roots from which John is drawing here. The word kaporeth was used as well, which speaks of a covering, typically the word from which we understand atonement. So atonement and propitiation go hand in hand. You kind of understand propitiation and atonement as they, as they walk side by side. You have a fuller view of the other, right? Is, there's no propitiation without atonement, but there's no atonement without propitiation. Read the same thing in Exodus 25, 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I give you. And one more reference, Exodus 30, verse 6. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet you. Now remember, the veil, that that veil in front of the most holy place kept you out. It kept sinners out. 
So that's the connection between what we read in verse 1 of 1 John 2 and verse 2 of 1 John 2. That you can be at the throne of grace. You can be in the presence of God because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has made propitiation for your sin. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has satisfied the justice of God that was hovering over you. That's good news, friends. That is the gospel. And because of that propitiation, we have reconciliation by the blood of Christ. On the final and last great day of atonement, Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for our sin and made satisfaction once for all to God for His people and took our sins away. That's what Hebrews 2.17 talks about, this making of reconciliation, making propitiation, bringing satisfaction, that we can come to God and knowing that His wrath does not abide on us but that what does abide on us is all His grace, all His mercy, all of His provision, all of His goodness, right? That is why we can appear before God and be reckoned not only as righteous, but be reckoned as sons. So in this case, Jesus, our high priest, see, in the Old Testament, the high priest brought the offering. In this case, our high priest is the offering. Jesus offers Himself, right? And we mentioned last week that the high priest took certain measures not to die when ministering in the presence of God. Jesus comes to die. He enters the most holy place to die, to be the offering. And what a good word that is. What rest that brings to the church, to the people of God, knowing that we have one who is not only righteous, but who satisfies God's justice against us. Justice which we richly deserve. So He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our, own, not for our sins only, right? Not just us, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now this is where we kind of get into what is often termed the theological weeds. And while it's not so much the point of this, uh, this passage to make a defense of the Calvinistic doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption, this is one of the main texts that is used to promote a a universal atonement, or to to argue that Christ died for all. And so one of the things we want to answer via this text is if Christ died for all, we say, well, all what? So we have to get into this text, and I think it will be a blessing for us to walk through it carefully. What does John mean here when he says, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world? And I think we find a very staggering and very, uh, very blessed truth in this. And we find what Christ's propitiatory act actually accomplished. So on one hand, sins of the whole world, we'll say right off the bat, it's not talking about universalism. We understand that if if universalism were true, there would be no warning of hell. There would be no warning of condemnation. In fact, John wouldn't even need to bring this up. He wouldn't even need to talk about a propitiation. So here we go. We're not talking about universalism. That's the first truth. We understand that on some level, Christ died for all. Listen to Titus 2, 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So we understand that there is a wideness in the scope of God's saving grace. In some sense, salvation is offered to all men. Hence, we preach the gospel to all men. We preach the gospel without prejudice. Of course, even as Calvinists, We preach the gospel without prejudice because we know that at least God saves all kinds of people. Secondly, we don't know who God intends to save. He says, just go therefore, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Preach the gospel. Baptize. Teach them everything I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. So in that sense, there is a wideness in the scope of God's mercy. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Of course, God's want speaks to a desire. He takes pleasure in the salvation of men. But you look at the context, and Timothy is talking about prayers. And he is saying, pray for all kinds of people. So it follows in verses 3 through 4 that God desires to save all kinds of people. 
You know, it's tempting on any social strata that you could say, oh, Christ only died for the little people, right? If you were a rich person, you could say, oh, well, Christ only died for the great and the honorable and the wise. You know, if you were a philosopher, God, God only sent Jesus to die for the wise. It is the wise who are deserving of his grace. But Paul makes it clear here to Timothy that God desires a salvation of every kind of person. Kings, governors, peasants, presidents. He saves all kinds of people. His grace is not limited to a particular social strata or economic strata. We know that in this working of salvation, God is sovereign. In Psalm 115.3, we read that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. So before we try to put the brakes on God's saving work, we understand that God is sovereign. This is His universe, and He can save whomever He wants. Like foundationally, we have to understand that. That if God is God, He is going to save whom He will. And who, honestly, who are we to object? What our task is, is to understand the beauty and magnificence of God's saving grace. And we understand that in Scripture. We also understand that in this, because God saves all kinds of people, we preach the gospel also to all kinds of people. As God desires all kinds of men to be saved, so do we desire all kinds of men to be saved. We are not miserly with the offer of grace. No, we preach without discrimination to any to everyone, knowing that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. So this text reminds us, whoever John is talking to specifically, reminds them that they are not the exclusive object of Christ's concern. He saves all kinds of men. A little bit more here just to see how this saving work works. In Matthew one twenty one. It says this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So the truth drawn here, and we will draw several of them, the truth drawn from Matthew one twenty one is that Christ's saving work extends to those who are his people specifically. And it is plain throughout all scripture that God has selected for himself a people, a people to, to worship him, a people to fellowship with him, and a people to whom he can draw near. That is crystal clear in the pages of the Bible. In Revelation 5.9, we read this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So what truths do we draw here regarding the spilling of blood, of Christ's blood? This, among other things, is that Christ's death, don't miss this part, is that Christ's death actually purchases people from all over the world. Now, this is at the crux of the argument of what Christ's death actually accomplished. One, did Christ's death make men merely savable, or did Christ's death actually save people? And I think it's clear from Scripture that it was the second one. That Christ's death is not something that is that is merely a... What would you call it? A... It's not, it's not something we would speculate over. It's not something nebulous or unclear. It is something that is crystal clear. Something that is definitive. Something that accomplishes everything that it was meant to accomplish. And so when Christ died, an actual purchase was made. And in this purchase, it was made for God with the blood of Christ from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the blood of Christ not only saves Jews, right? not for our sins only, but what does it say? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. For all kinds of people. For all the world. It buys people. It doesn't merely make them buyable. Here's another one to consider. John 10.15, Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father... And I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, there is a distinction in the human race, especially in the New Testament, especially from the teachings of Jesus. And it is that there are sheep and there are goats. The sheep belong to Jesus. The goats are not his people. Even though he has ownership over them, he is Lord of all. 
But he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus dies for the sheep, meaning that he dies on behalf of a particular group. He even references, in this context, sheep from another fold. I think alluding to Gentiles, but he gives no indication anywhere that he dies for goats. He dies for his sheep, for his people. Acts 20.28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, this is Paul speaking here, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So once again, the sacrifice of Christ is made clear. It's the spilling of his blood and that a purchase was made. Who did he purchase? He purchased a church. He purchased the ecclesia. He purchased an assembly. And here's another one. Colossians 1.22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So note this, he has reconciled you through death. He did not, the blood of Christ, here's the point, the blood of Christ did not make you reconcilable. It actually brought reconciliation, a a definitive reconciliation in that it actually restored a sinner's relationship with God. It made the relationship of a sinner right with God again. It basically made us his friends again. Made us his sons. Once again, we're not dealing with potential. We're not dealing with what is potential. We're dealing with what is actual. Salvation, once again, not some nebulous, unclear, speculative thing but a salvation actually procured through the death of Christ. So this is not a hypothetical act that is in view, not with reconciliation, not with salvation, not with propitiation. All of these things are actual, real, concrete things that Christ's death produced and achieved. I love this one, 1 Peter 2.24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. See, this healing, it's like it already took place. It was as good as done. So that's what happened. Even though your salvation, your coming to Christ would take place, you know, hundreds, thousands of years later, what Christ's sacrifice on the cross did was in effect guarantee that at some point you would come to saving faith in him. Why? Because he died for you. Not to make you savable, but to actually save you. And so in 1 Peter, we see that Jesus actually paid for sins when he died and was punished in our place. And we find out there is an, an after effect of this. One is, that dying to sin, one is dying to sins, something that we could never do on our own. Secondly, living to righteousness. Once again, something we could never do on our own. Thirdly, his wounds actually bring healing. See, all these things are concrete realities, not things that may or may not happen. If Christ died for you, again, we don't know who the elect are, but everyone for whom Christ died will eventually bow the knee to him, will eventually believe in him. Our job as the church is to preach the gospel. It is to advance the kingdom by proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of the king. So you see all that is just look to Christ your savior, understanding that it's all of grace and there's nothing we can do. Right now, right now, as a Christian, we only we only have one one thing we really do. Our part is to recognize that God's part is the only part. First recognize that. Going on. One more, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So what are the truths drawn here? Jesus actually paid the penalty for sins, just like it said in 2.24. Two, he actually died in our place as our substitute. Jesus died in your place. And if he did, he paid the penalty for your sins. Three, is death brings us to God. Once again, friends, these are not potential results. I know this is technical, but we ha- there is a point to this, is to understand what the central teaching of Christianity actually means. And it is that which brings us the greatest joy and comfort. 
His death brings us to God. These are not potential results, but effectual results based on His finished work. And so, we return to 1 John 2.2. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In Christ, our sins, the sins we committed willingly against a holy God, satisfied in Christ so that God's wrath no longer hangs against us. In fact, He removes the very curse. And so in light of these passages, we could say that we're left with only a couple of options. One is this. Christ satisfied divine wrath for every person who ever existed and people still go to hell. Or the whole world refers to humanity in general, including Jew and Gentile. And I think on contextual grounds it's clear that this refers to all, all of humanity in general, that it is Jew and Gentile. And I realize, like, in our 20, through our 21st century lens of viewing Scripture, this is difficult. If you lived in the first century, this was an enormous truth presented by the Gospel, that in Christ, by the shedding of His blood, He would bring together Jew and Gentile and make them a new man. That was a scandalous teaching on either side, especially if you were a Jew. Like, if you went into a Gentile's house, you were considered unclean. Like, how could... How could God make one a Jew with these dirty pagan Gentiles? And yet, He did. This is the marvel of the Gospel, that He could make one new man from Jew and Gentile. And that's why John can say, not for ours only, but for also the whole world. Don't forget the, the global nature of the saving work of Christ. You think this would make... If, if, if God, if, if Jesus truly died for every person without exception, and the wrath of God is satisfied against every person without exception, it would make God unjust to send anyone to hell. That's what we call double jeopardy. Because the sent- if the sentence has already been carried out, there should be no more sentence left to carry out. If God is truly satisfied in the death of His Son, and that this death is universal, this atonement is universal, then no one should go to hell. Otherwise, it would mean that God's justice truly is not satisfied. There is more to satisfy. But just so we understand, John speaks of this elsewhere. Now turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 11. We'll start at verse 47, because I think John is really saying the same thing here. In John 11, we'll start at uh, verse 47. It says this, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man, Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Now stop there. Do you, do you, do you think the, teacher, the, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, really thought all men without exception? No, it's mean like, wow, a lot of people, all kinds of men, people everywhere are going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, they did it anyway, did they not? Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. It is amazing how people accidentally tell the truth. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now, here's our key. Here's the key to unlocking 1 John 2.2. 2. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. From that day they planned together to kill him. Who are the children of God who are scattered abroad? Gentiles. This oneness language is further clarified in Paul. Read the book of Ephesians. He talks about that dividing wall being broken down. That Gentiles were formerly cut off kind of using some circumcision imagery there. They were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. And now, as Paul says in Romans, they are grafted in. And this forms one new man. And so John is simply alluding to the same thing. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles being made into one in John chapter 11. And then in 1 John 2.2, he demonstrates once again that Christ's death was not only for the Jews, but also for 
the Gentiles, for the whole world. That's all that's going on here. I think the same thing is being alluded to in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. God's love was not only confined to the Jews, but in Christ goes throughout and is preached throughout the entire, the entire world. So it is no stretch to conclude that John here is not saying that Christ's sacrifice satisfied divine wrath toward all humanity without exception. But that he made propitiation, paid in full, for a particular group of people. And all those people would come to place their faith in Christ. So what are sinners doing in, so what are sinners in hell doing? The question may come up. Well, they're paying for the price of sin. Some may say, well, they are paying in hell because of their unbelief. And so we should respond with equal fervor. How is unbelief not covered on the cross? Unbelief is the chiefest sin. Unbelief is the sin from which all other sins flow. Should we think it strange then that the atonement included the sin of unbelief? And yes, it did. Scripture knows no such distinction that when Christ propitiates for sin, He does so for all sins, even and especially the sin of unbelief. Because what happens when a sinner repents? They believe. They are transformed from unbeliever to believer. And so on that, I reject the notion that the whole world refers to every single human being without distinction. And yet we still say that's still not the main point of 1 John 2, 2. I'll tell you what the first point is. Look to the text again, and may we find encouragement, because the whole thrust of this, of the instruction this morning was to look to Christ your Savior. And Christian, this is just as important now in Christ as it was when the gospel first came to you when you were in unbelief. Don't stop looking to Christ your Savior. So here I believe is the main point, and it's this final consideration. It is John's use of he himself, and how it performs in this verse is an emphatic expression in which draw, John draws the attention to the person of Jesus Christ specifically. So the emphasis on this, passion, on this passage, friends, isn't even the extent of the atonement, even though it is argued from this, from this passage. It's the exclusivity of the one making atonement. That is to say, Jesus is identified in 1 John 2, 2, the world over as the only available person to satisfy or appease the wrath of God against sinners, similar to the book of Revelation, right? Everyone's looking far and wide. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Of course, there was weeping because no one was worthy, but there was one, the Lion of Judah. And in the same sense, who is worthy? Who is righteous to make propitiation on our behalf? Otherwise, we are all lost and eternally condemned to be separated from God forever. And we look and we see, here is one. Here is one who can make atonement. Here is one who can satisfy the justice of God against us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. So right, it's not on the extent of the atonement, but on the exclusivity of the one who is making that atonement. We read this in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. This is where we get the precious doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That no matter how sincere you are in your practice of your personal private religion, no matter how sincere, no matter how well-meaning, the only way to God is through Christ. Acts 4.12 says that salvation is found and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The apostles understood this. And so must Christians today. We have forgotten this doctrine. It's like we, we're, 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 we're obsessed with playing nice. We're obsessed with the world liking us. We're obsessed with the world being appeased with us. Where what really matters is that God is appeased. And we make that clearly known when we declare that only Christ is able to save. I believe this comes to from this, that this passage is in somewhat a fulfillment of Isaiah. What does Isaiah, what does Isaiah the prophet say? He says, look to me, 
all the ends of the earth, right? Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So you see that connection between salvation and the exclusiveness of God. I am God, there is no other. There is no other Savior besides me. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. See, he will not turn back this decree. That to, that to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Doesn't this sound familiar? Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone. And they will say of me, oh, listen to this. This is the foundation of our gospel preaching. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to me and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. See, men are angry at God, and yet little do they know that God is angry with them. Oh, you can quench the anger of man, but how, how do we quench the anger of God? How do we satisfy the wrath of God? It is only in Christ. Only Christ is worthy. So in here, we see this global spread of the gospel that may all the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentile, look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is no longer working exclusively with the Jews. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. So no matter what your background, no matter what your culture or your religion, and I think in this context, no matter what your sacrifice, Christ is the only available means for appeasing divine justice. He is the only one who can quench the wrath of Almighty God held So three closing encouragements today. How do we understand the satisfaction of God's wrath? This is where our comfort comes. When you sin, right? When you sin and you will, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And this righteous one makes propitiation for your sin. Only he does. And God is, and the Lord even, and and the point of this this section is that we would see this salvific work the same way that God sees it. Here we go. When Christ makes propitiation, he satisfies God's wrath totally, in total. But there is no more wrath hanging against you. 1 John 1, 7. If you're not there, if you want to pay attention to that that passage, 1 John 1, 7. It says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin, not some but all. And that is why we can stand righteous before God. We've been cleansed from sin. Secondly, Christ satisfies God's wrath. Christ satisfies God's wrath. Finally, there is a finality to this. Don't miss the decree. First, your sins were decreed against you, but now they are no longer decreed against you because that sin has been paid for. In Romans 8, 31 through 34, we read this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So there's questions asked here. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, right? All of us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then there's another question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now it's getting personal. We're the elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, he who raised, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You see who, how this whole picture plays into 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. We have Christ's intercession. We have Christ who died. We have God who declares us righteous. There is a final decree for us concerning our sin. And it is this, that in Christ, God remembers our sins no more. He has removed them from us. And so when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? What follows is exactly what we are to say. The answer is always God. God did not spare his own son. God is the one who justifies. Christ is the one who died. And he intercedes for us as our high priest. Thirdly and finally, Christ satisfies God's wrath eternally. The gift that keeps on giving, friends, so that there will never be a time from when you are regenerated by the preaching of the gospel, by the power of the word of God. From then until all of eternity, there will never be a time where God is not satisfied. 
with the blood of His Son. And therefore, there will never be a time where God is not satisfied with you. Remember, His satisfaction with the blood of Christ means His satisfaction with us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I see that fist out there. Yeah. For the law of the Spirit of life which is in Christ Jesus has set you what? Free from the law of sin and death. And we can say amen to that. Look to Christ, your Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this precious word that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who satisfies your justice, your just justice against us. And that we see the wideness of your mercy in that. The gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth because you desire all manner of men to be saved. And Lord, how it prevails upon us that as we look to you, our Savior, that we can call without prejudice all men to repent and believe, all men to look to you and to only you. Lord, forgive us for when we look to other things, for other, to other men, even sometimes to other gods, to idols, for any saving work whatsoever. Far be it from us, Lord, to, to treat our precious Savior with such contempt. Lord, I pray that this would be a refreshment for us, that we have a Savior. Once again, the most basic, the most basic instruction that even a child can understand and that even a knuckle-headed adult can understand, that we look to Christ our Savior and no other, the only Savior, the only Savior, the only one who can bring satisfaction to a just and holy God who we now can call Father. Oh, Father, we do thank You for thank you for our Savior. Help us, God, especially in this time. What an opportunity to take Christmas time to look to our Savior afresh and to remind ourselves that He is the only one. And that as the only one, He is the sufficient one. So help us, God, to, to look to Him today. Lord, we thank You for Your continued work in our body. Um, help us to be people of grace. Help us to continue to encourage one another to, to walk by the Spirit, to submit to your working, submit to the authority of your word and find ourselves constantly transformed by it. And as I have already prayed, Lord, may we, may we be conformed to Christ. May we resemble him. And may we continue to thrive by the working of his power in us. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.